0: Times have changed, and uh, mostly because what I, uh, in one way I see it for sure is i don 't see anybody hitchhiking anymore. There was a time where that was a, an acceptably safe thing to do uh, when I was a youngster, to just give you an idea of how different it was and how absolutely crazy. My mom was, no, I love my mom. And I always have to point out that I love my mom after I say something like that because she listens to these sermons online. Love you, mom. Uh, <laughs> uh, she used to let me hitchhike. She'd say, you know, I, just, I want to go out and see my friends. And they, she'd go, well, hitch your ride. And I'd go literally out to the street, stick my thumb out, people would pick me up, and I'd go. When I was in college, this is the major way you got around Morgantown, West Virginia, the home of the Mountaineers the you there were 3 campuses in Morgantown and you and it was the whole city and they had a rail system between two of them but from where i lived you had to go out onto the main street university avenue and there would literally be a dozen people out there trying to hitch a ride to the downtown campus if you were one of the fortunate ones that had a car there was a kind of a system whereby you picked up the first person in line and then you drove them downtown so I had a car, my senior my junior and senior year I had a car, and so I was able to pick people up. And as an enthusiastic young Christian, I seized on that opportunity because once they got into my car and the car started rolling, there was no getting out. And so I would begin a dialogue with them and ask them about their life, and I would, you know, pick at them with questions, what do you do with your spare time? With the hopes that at some point in the drive they would ask me. Uh, what, what do you do with your spare time? And that was like the question where they wished they hadn't asked because I would tell them the truth. Well, I hang out a lot with my friends from my campus ministry. I'm a Christian, and if they didn't like immediately say, "Would you let me out right here?" Um, I would explain my faith to them, and the you know most of the time they were like, "Got great," and and grateful that they got out of the trap they were in. And this was actually a relatively you know, easy way to go about sharing your faith, and it wasn't that culturally unacceptable to do that. It wasn't an odd thing to do, as opposed to what even then in the mid-1980s, what was really strange is in our student union, they would have outdoor preachers come, and they would scream at the students. Now, that even then was not a very well-received methodology for... Uh, a way to go about communicating your faith. Now, if you just go back 20 years before then, uh, outdoor preaching on college campuses was a very socially acceptable way to go about doing things because in the 1960s, they had free speech areas and oftentimes those free speech areas uh, were open forums for anybody to talk and Campus Crusade for Christ would send Josh McDowell, a young, fresh Josh McDowell into these places and he would get up in front of hundreds and hundreds of students who just heard somebody lecture about the evils of capitalism or something, and he would say, I'm here to talk to you about Jesus. Now, again, people like were really upset about that sometimes. They're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus freaks it down. But it wasn't odd. It wasn't a strange you know, sort of environment. They might have found him strange, but they didn't find the tactic he was using strange as Matt mentioned you know our mission is relatively clear as a church we first and foremost go to people who would consider themselves religious and they may not have been in church for a while for any number of reasons but we're hoping to see them revived by perhaps for the first time or through some type of hopeful renewal uh, they would understand that God is not as angry as they think he is and that he would be at peace. They would know that they could be at peace with him today through Christ and that the grace of God was so good that they just, you know, that they really are misunderstanding and if they feel like they've got to stay away from church until they stop being immoral. And we, so we try to, hey, listen, that's the only way you're ever gonna improve as a person if that's your goal in life is to be close to God. We want people to be revived in their love for the Lord. And then what happens is is it falls upon those who are presumably falling in love with Jesus more and more to be a people that would reach their friends and family for Christ. And we'll have an opportunity to do that next month at Easter, where a lot of our friends and family and people that we know from work are looking for a place to go and celebrate Easter. They have a Christian heritage, perhaps, or they just feel like this is a good time for us to revisit this subject And so I would encourage you to keep your eyes peeled and your, you know, your ears open to opportunities and pray that God would, you know, present people that you might be able to uh, invite to come and hear the good news of the resurrection. And then as he mentioned with JT and and other ministries that we're developing, we're, we're hoping to just love our culture well and care for people well that they would see the attributes of God in that. So it's not rocket science it's it's very simple but one of the things that makes that a difficult mission to accomplish is that middle part there where we are asked to be the mouthpiece whereby the gospel gets presented to somebody else that presents all sorts of frightening possibilities for us and and truthfully a lot of us have kind of hibernated ourselves away from anybody who doesn't know Jesus because it's very easy to do that. It's particularly easy for me because all day long I work with people who are Christians and and I spend my week preparing for worship and leading studies and working with staff guys who are Christians and interacting with other pastors who are Christians. And so I have to be very intentional about the development of relationships with people who don't know what it means to be loved by God through Christ. You may be in that same situation. Even if that isn't the case, we're still at some point going to have to vocalize what it is that we want think and feel and that in and of itself is a challenge and so we've gone through something I do every few years I try not to make too big of a habit of it but it's it's a little teaching series I developed 10 years ago called sharing your faith with tact and the basic presumption is that there's real joy in getting to be somebody who introduces another person to Christ but we'd like to be able to know how to do that and not look like a complete and utter jerk Or somebody who makes somebody feel so uncomfortable that they never want to take you again uh, and talk to you again. Or somebody who gets trapped in a car, say, while they were hitchhiking and they start talking to the Jesus freak behind the wheel and they will never, ever hitchhike ever again. You'd like to not be that person. And I understand that and I appreciate that because I've both been the recipient of that kind of Jesus freakery and been the one who gave that kind of weirdness to others. And so I thought, in our day and age... We're constantly reviving a sense of what does it mean for us to be the missionaries that all of us have been called to be inside our context and culture. So this is going to seem, hopefully, it's not going to be too long of a sermon, but it's going to seem like two sermons in one. And I'm going to, as quickly as I can, blow through a really important contextual analysis of Acts chapter 17. We have talked about theology, which is the first letter in our acronym TACT. We've talked about authenticity, caring. Today we're talking about Technique, because a lot of people want to know, what do I do? How do I actually advance this opportunity to talk to somebody? Because it just seems like it would be an awkward conversation. And I think there's some things that we can learn, some insight about how to do that from how Paul addressed the Athenians of his day. Now, in this context, uh, Paul is in the city of Athens, and and that's in Greece. Um, It is actually a port city about five miles from the Aegean Sea. It is called the birthplace of democracy. It was a cultural and intellectual community. It was the worship center for Athena, who was the Greek god of wisdom. So there is this sense in which it's an appropriate place for the real thinkers of that day to to kind of congregate. The philosophers Paul was dealing with are a group of philosophers that were referred to as Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And real briefly, I want to let you know that in Paul's day, he was compelled to share truth with people so as he walked through the city he was saying to himself i've got to talk to these folks while he was waiting for the other disciples in athens it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols you know in athens the 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 street from the port to the city was uh, you know was lined with these idols devoted to many of the greek deities and so this troubled Paul greatly. And it's, it's really in concert with what he would have written to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, Christ's love compelled us because we're convinced that, the one, that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who should live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So Paul's conviction was that Jesus died for the people who were worshiping these false gods, and he wanted very much to have them understand that Jesus loves them. So he moves into the city. He starts to interact. He goes to the synagogue, and uh, and as is always the case, has some challenges there, uh, begins to reason in the marketplace, and then he kind of graduates to the big show, you know, the opportunity to interact with these philosophers at a place called Mars Hill, which is not only a church in Seattle or Grand Rapids, it's an actual place in the Bible in Acts 17. Uh, Mars was, was was the god of war. That's what the Romans referred to him as Mars. The Greek philosophers referred to him as Ares. And so they met on the Mount of Ares, which was called Mars Hill. And this is where these philosophers, and I think it's interesting that these smart people of his day thought he was ignorant thought his message was ignorant, thought he was a babbler, which could be taken that he was either somebody who were like tired of hearing because it was so simplistic, or it could be that they think Paul had pieced together all of these things from their past. And so he was just somebody who was trying to trade on the history of philosophy and theology in his day. Either way, they weren't impressed. And at the end of the passage, you can read that when they heard about the resurrection, they actually sneered. So the idea of a body physically resurrecting from the dead was not super well received now the epicurean philosophers and this is what i find really interesting and and similar to our day and age the epicurean the the essence of the epicurean philosophy was the belief that the avoidance of pain was the chief end in life now if this isn't america i don't know what else is because i that is my personal philosophy when i'm not thinking well because you know as a as a christian i recognize that i'm called to suffer But most of the time as an American, I'm thinking, how do we avoid that at all costs, you know? And so it's the building up of comfort around myself. Now, perhaps you're one of those people that is way more spiritual than I am. Well, be careful there because the stoic philosophers were the ones that said, we need to beat ourselves up. They thought thought that real spiritual, real intellectual, real philosophical depth was when a person uh, embraced a philosophy of stern self-denial. That was their sense. And, and you can see that there are people in our culture that rail against capitalism, and not to say that there aren't times where that needs to happen, or they rail against greed, and I think that needs to happen all the time. But what happens is, is both of these philosophies, in and of themselves, are basically self run, self-centered, self-governed. It's all about us. It is the idea that we are going to be able to fix everything by just looking inwardly instead of looking to the God who created us. And hence, Paul's whole message, if you look at it, is like, let's talk about the real God because we're dealing with objective truth, eternal realities, not philosophies and not uh, mysteries, but the God of all creation. So Paul is dealing with these philosophies, that, that these philosophers who don't think much of what he's saying. And he echoes this to the Corinthians 2 when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So the gospel itself is understandable to children. Now, it doesn't mean that that's all we'll ever learn about the gospel, but you can be a Christian with a very limited understanding of what the Bible says. You can be somebody who has some severe disabilities as far as learning is concerned, and you can become a Christian. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have a, a, a working comprehension of every religion in the world. There are people who do. We got a brother. Here's a philosophy professor. And, and so I'm saying there are people that do, but you don't have to have all that to understand a very simple reality that Paul was pointing out. If Jesus really rose from the dead, he really is God, and you can know him. And that may sound simplistic, but in fact, it is. There's some depths to it. There's some angles at it. There's some things we can comprehend and should comprehend at a greater level about the character and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and all of the marvelous attributes of God. And there's endless discovery that can take place. But the starting point is a very simple message that God loves us. He has forgiven us in Christ, and you can know him you can really know the God of all creation. And last in my pre-sermon of the sermon is that these responses were varied. Now, Paul does some really interesting things in his discussion and finishes, and it says that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And here are... The, here's the good news some people became followers of Paul and believed and among them was one of the Oropagus and a woman named Damaris so there were a few people who believed there were a few people who said I'd like to hear more on this I, I'm not completely convinced but it's interesting and there are some people that just went you know please I am not that stupid this I have to tell you is par for the course If you get into an encounter or a discussion with a friend, family member, coworker, or in the case that I had this week, a complete stranger, there's a possibility that one of three things is going to result from that conversation. One is going to be, I really think I'd like to become a Christian. Um, He isn't here today, but uh, Josh, who helps with our setup team, and he's a friend of a lot of ours, he's in our mission community in Duarte, Uh, he's not feeling well today, so he stayed home. Uh, Josh recently became a Christian and he'll get baptized the second week in April. And so we're going to have a baptism service. If you've never been baptized before, let me know. Uh, Josh actually just started to discover the Lord through We Defend. So he went to a We Defend event. He met friendly JT, was wearing his karate pajamas and... And, and, and the next thing you know, he's like, okay, I'd like to come to your church. And then he comes to the church, and he begins to talk. And, and then he and I meet one day, and I say to him, are you a Christian? He said, no. I said, would you like to become a Christian? He says, yes. I said, really? Okay. Um, would, you, would you like to pray later in your room, or would you like to pray right now? And he says, I'd like to pray right now. And this is kind of one of those things where you go, wow, this is working like they say it should in the New Testament, <laughs> you know? somebody actually so I mean so we prayed in my office and he became a Christian it was the coolest thing in the world now there are times where I most of the time my experience around here is that people go they're polite and they go that's interesting and and then they drop it and move on and and then occasionally I meet somebody who through the course of the discussion just gets hostile and you got to back off and go sorry I didn't mean to upset you And they just sneer and they're so bitter or so angry about any number of things that they find what you believe offensive. It isn't necessarily you, but this is the issue I would like to address. And that is Paul uh, was not offensive to people. So when we talk about technique in the fourth component of this series, I'm, I'm not here to try to teach you like some like four spiritual laws technique which is what we memorized in the 1980s. You know, you have the little orange book in case you need it, but you memorized. and part of the discipleship process as a college student was memorizing the two scriptures with each law and then taking somebody from the beginning all the way through the sinner's prayer at the end and then hopefully getting them to come to a meeting after that. So there was a very mapped out sort of methodology. This is not the object of what we're doing today. What we're doing today is to say no matter what we do, there is a couple of things that we can pick up from Paul's approach that will help you and I feel less burdened or frightened of the experience. I mean, for a lot of us, I think the idea of, you know, what's behind door number three, the sneering is what keeps us from going there. But I think what's exciting and why the, you know, let's make a deal works is because there is a door number one You know, there is a possibility that you're going to ask the person if they want to become a Christian, and they go, sure, and I'd like to pray with you right now. And you go, okay. (laughs) And you begin to see that God actually is working, and there's a joy that comes with that as his child, where you realize this is really, there's no experience that parallels this. And so many in the Christian community have kind of taken themselves out of even the possibility of being a part of that because they were afraid of not having all the answers or they were afraid of getting attacked. And I'm just here to tell you that it's worth the stretch, that there's more of a possibility, I think, that they're going to either respond positively or say, That's interesting, I'd like to build a relationship with you and talk more about it. But that you don't need to fear because ultimately your job is merely to communicate the gospel. And there will be times where people reject you. I mean, reject the message, and it may feel like they're rejecting you, but they're really not. So now it's time for the sermon. And you're thinking, wow, when are we getting out of here? Seriously, their last part of this will go quickly. There, There are two things I think we can pick up from Paul's address at Mars Hill that I think will be helpful to you. All right? And the first is this: our method must be culturally sensitive. Uh and in verse 19, it says, They took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where he said to them, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. First and foremost, recognize that Paul brought it to them, and they said, We want to hear more. So right away, if you're going to be culturally sensitive, what you're going to want to do in a relationship is, if you get the idea that there's somebody pushing back, back off. You know, if somebody, if you go, yeah, I'm a Christian, do you have any religious faith? And they go, I don't want to talk to you about religious faith. That would be your first cultural cue to kind of step back. (laughs) All right? That whole jam the square peg into the round hole thing is the kind of evangelism I grew up with, which is even if they don't want to hear if you love them, just bang them on the head with the, you know, and you're like, "Uh, that never works has never worked, and Paul didn't do that. You know, he, he generally at least got permission to speak. And so he would be sensitive he was also savvy in verse 28 he talks about their poets so into the conversation it recognized that paul was kind of in touch and so you know i think it's completely appropriate if you're having life discussions with people that you let them know you are not amish you don't churn your own butter you you watch movies and, you know, you get mad at your spouse and your kids get you to the brink of insanity every now and again. I mean, you, you, you know, that you, you let them know that I'm part of this culture. I'm not against the culture. I'm not outside the culture. I'm not asking you to pack up your goodies and move to South America with me and my friends. I'm a part of your world. And Paul says, you know, here's a philosopher. He was quoting uh, Aratus of Cilicia When he says, listen, even one of your own poets, he references the stuff in the city, says, you know, and semi-sarcastically, he says, you know, you guys are really religious. I mean, you've got one over there. We're worshiping a God we don't even know. I mean, he was sort of being funny and tongue-in-cheek. At least that's the way I read it. Now, it may not have been received that way, but who knows? What I do know is that times change. Uh, Campus open-air preaching doesn't work anymore. I've never seen it work in my 20, 30 years of being a Christian, you know, getting out in the middle of the street or following the Rose Bowl parade down Colorado Boulevard and screaming at everybody, they're going to hell, not particularly effective methodology for, and that happens every year, you know, a group of people that didn't get approved to be in the parade because you're going to hell doesn't make a good rose float, you know. (laughs) So they follow in behind the gang with the bullhorns and you're going to hell. And it was like no big surprise you weren't allowed to be in the cultural festivities. Our method has to be culturally sensitive. Instead of trapping people and giving them no way out where to engage them. So while Jesus may be odd to them, our methods aren't. A friend of mine always says most people think most people think Christians are strange already without us going and making it doubly bad by being strange Christians we talked last week about caring for people and one of the methods I see as critical to successful sharing of our faith is um, particularly in our context uh, in our world is the capacity to listen well and to ask lots of questions and that to get to know people, to genuinely genuinely care for them, but also in the hopes that they'll ask you questions too. See, because until they ask you into their little world, come, I want to hear more about what you're saying, it's really odd for you to force that in. So this past week I was sitting there trying to do my devotionals, and a young woman came in to Tommy's. If you ever want to find me from 8 to 10 most mornings, I'm violating my diet by eating a breakfast burrito across the street from our offices there at Tommy's, and I was getting ready to have my time with Jesus and uh, and my burrito and 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 this young woman comes in. She was actually 30. I didn't. She looked much younger, and she was a talker. I mean, she was talking, 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 talking. And I could tell right away she was lonely. So I sat at the table by myself, and she came up and actually asked if she could sit down. So right away, I'm thinking, okay, this is one of those moments where. God may be at work this is a person who actually is asking themselves into my world and I said sure sit down so I put my Bible aside and she asked me a couple of questions about who I was and then she launched into what she thought and what she believed and I kid you not I sat there with, there with her for two hours and for an hour and 45 minutes of that I just listened now I know there's some of you particularly guys who are friends of mine that wonder how in the world did you do that Because I am a talker, to say the least. But as part of the process, I just kept asking questions. And actually, there were times where she was very resistant to me asking questions. And I said, well, I'm just curious who you are. And, you know, by the end of the conversation, there were times where I could then jump in and say, this is what I think. And she, you know, because obviously she let me know for an hour and a half what she thought. And so I thought, well, you know, it was appropriate. I didn't think she was going to stomp off and get mad. But she didn't go... I'd like to pray to know Jesus right now. As a matter of fact, at a couple of times in the conversation, she grew very hostile towards what I was saying about our brokenness and our need for forgiveness and God being a God of justice. These were all things that, really weren't well received at all and she had kind of hodgepodge together her theology but the point was I would have never been able to even get to the 15 minutes of talking to her about Jesus if I had spent an hour and 45 minutes meeting a really important need for her which was somebody to talk to and she was lonely and I understand loneliness and so I gave and you know it doesn't always yield you know this eternal fruit of somebody coming to christ but i would say if you really want a a starting point for opening the door to the possibility that one day you might get to talk to somebody about jesus people love to talk and if you're willing to listen they're eventually going to ask you what you think they're eventually going to let you into their world so in addition to our method being culturally sensitive our message has to be christ exalting all right, Paul said to them, he stood at the meeting of the Areopagus. He said, people of Athens, I see that in every way. You're very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, I would tell you that in the 21st century, that last line probably not going to be received too well. I mean, if you get up in front of a bunch of people at work and you say, so you are ignorant and I am going to proclaim to you this, that's probably not going to be very well received. But I will tell you that the cross itself, even gently communicated, even essentially communicated the idea that Jesus had to die to pay for your sins, and that physically this Jesus, this historic Jesus, literally came back from the dead, to a lot of people in our culture, that's just stupid. I mean, you are really foolish for believing that. And there's no way around it. If Jesus really came back from the dead, then we have to proclaim it, and people may go, that's some weird stuff. I really don't want to talk to you anymore about this. And that's just going to have to be the way it goes. If Jesus didn't really come back from the dead, then our faith is kind of silly itself. And they're right for mocking us. And why are you here? So it's kind of like one of those times where, you know, when you talk to people about Christianity as understood in the New Testament, you have to actually go, okay, if this really is real, you know, what am I doing and am I sharing with the urgency that Paul would have shared? Am I willing to be somebody who even gently, kindly, if they don't want to hear it, I don't tell them. But if they do say, hey, what do you believe about this? I'm willing to say, I believe some things that you probably are going to think might be a little kooky. One is that a guy was physically dead. He came back from the life, came back to life, and that proves that he's God. The message that Paul gave, you can see in verse 24 of the text, is first, who is God? Who is God? In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So part of what Paul is doing is correcting erroneous thinking. From their perspective, God was temples, God was idols, God was this, God was that. And and Paul is saying, I've got an entirely new reality to spin. A reality that says, God created us. We are his offspring so to speak as your poets have said but he is not a little tiki statue and he is not in a building he lives in human hearts and then he goes on to say what God has done in verses 30 and 31 which is probably where some of them said I am not any longer going to put up with this babbler Paul said in the past God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent to turn from their own ways and follow him, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he gives this judgment call. and you can understand if people don't buy into jesus being raised from the dead if they don't think they're immoral if they don't think they're in need of forgiveness this is not a message that they're going to want to hear again they may even want to sneer but there are some by god's grace that have come to a place of saying i understand this now i get this and it 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 is takes just as much of a miracle for a person of no intellectual capacity to understand the gospel as somebody who's really smart and one of their own came to the conclusion i believe this so it's not beyond the possibility that somebody who seems philosophically and theologically so far away to understand something as simple as if jesus really came to life he's god He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one who made me. I am made in his image. And it makes zero sense to share anything with people unless there is a compelling reason to do so. If Jesus is who we say he really is, namely God incarnate and the savior of the world, then this message ultimately has to be about him. And we do this because God wants to rescue people. And Paul beautifully summarizes that in verse 27, where he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. The end of my junior year in college, I was working as a resident assistant at a dorm. And everybody had left campus, and so I was driving to the store for something, and as I was driving back down University Avenue, there was a single hitchhiker, and he was a very, very tall man. And I recognized that he was probably a basketball player at West Virginia because he was African American, and the minority student enrollment at West Virginia University is very, very low. So, if you're a minority student in the mid 1980s at West Virginia University, there was a very good chance that you were a part of the athletic program. Now, I'm sure there were law students and all that, but the majority of the athletes, particularly the ones that were six foot eight, um, the majority of the guys, six foot eight African American guys on campus, my powers of deduction went, this guy's a basketball player, and that, and the t shirt he was wearing that said Mountaineer basketball. All that to say, had to pick the guy up he was the only one there <laughs> and you'd really look odd driving past one hitchhiker in morgantown so i picked him up and of course i started in on my routine which most of the time went let me off up here right so i said you know what do you do with your time and he says well i play basketball at the university i said oh, that's great that's great love the mountaineer basketball team diehard mountaineer maniac here we talked a little bit and he started to tell me who he gave me his name and you know, said that he isn't playing on the team anymore, and things started to click in my head. There's something going on here. And then he asked me, what do you do with your spare time? And, of course, my answer was, I'm a Christian, and so I'm pretty involved in my campus group, and, you know, I'm almost slowing down to let him out. You know what I mean? Because that's normally what happens. So I'm like, take my foot off the gas, and, you know, <laughs> oh, fatalist that I am. And, and, and he says, really? says, I, I really need to understand what Christianity is all about. My life is going down the toilet. And then it clicked. That year at West Virginia, there was a scandal. The basketball team, five members of the team, had allegedly raped a student. And it made national news. And if you look it up, 1985, West Virginia University. And it was eventually thrown out. You know, the, they didn't charge them, but team members were dismissed from the team. And this guy was one of them. And you could see the devastation in his eyes. And you can imagine he's there on campus all by himself. And he's in the car with me. And I say, you can know forgiveness. And he's like, I need to know this. And I drove him not just to campus, which would have been the normal drop-off point. I drove him all the way to his place. And we sat in that car and talked for hours. And he didn't say, can I pray right now to know Jesus? But By God's miraculous grace, I sort of made myself available. And it took a few shots, but one of those times that you reach out, one of those times that you actually care enough to say, I'm going to make myself available to this process, it is possible that somebody's going to give you the miraculous, wonderful opportunity to tell them forgiveness for whatever you've done is available. And our mission as a church, one part of it is that you and I would reach out to friends. But to do that, we're going to have to be convinced that we're called to do that. We're going to have to be authentic and genuine and broken and fallen. We're going to have to be people that demonstrate a real care for others. And we're going to have to be particularly sensitive about when it's time for us to speak and when it's time for us to be quiet. But this is the great mission we're on. And I'd invite you to join me. So let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for the amazing love you've demonstrated to us in Christ and the privilege we have. The privilege we have to... to